Hello, and welcome to The Box. I'm your host, Addison Gilmore. A while back, I came across a box full of old journals with weird stories that seemed way too bizarre to be true. The further I dug in trying to find the source of these stories, things got even stranger. They're about to get even stranger still. So, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, stop what you're doing, go back to the beginning, and start there. Otherwise, things are going to make even less sense than they already do. I don't know who you are or what you're up to, but let me suggest that you leave this alone. Are you still having dreams? Seriously, what the fuck is happening here? Regnant is not the big bad in this season. I won't become a weapon. You got this. Guard up, head down, keep moving forward. All right, folks, I know I was super vague last time, and I feel like I'm apologizing all the time, which frankly isn't new. I apologize to furniture I accidentally knock into, but I'm thinking it's time to get the ball rolling on the nitty gritty of what played out after I told Terry I wanted to train. Real quick refresher. Um, Last time we talked, I was planning to do some, well, training in anticipation of going head-to-head with the Shadow Organization boss slash estranged father's girlfriend, Ariana. So, I trained. And (laughs) y'all... This was before that stupid human voice recorder thing kicked off, so you don't get to hear me getting my ass kicked. On your end, that might be disappointing, but for me, it's salvaging the last of my tattered ego. Not to say I wouldn't share it if I could, because, let's face it, I'm a glutton for punishment, but no such luck, my friends. I couldn't actually tell you when that whole thing kicked in, to be honest. I've tried to figure it out, but the files, I guess you would call them, more than memories, were different in the earliest days. Like, and again, I'm aging myself. You know how cassette tapes would give you this warbly, warped audio when the actual physical tape got messed up until the machine just, like, ate it? Yeah like that. So, even finding something to share, I don't reliably know where to begin. I will tell you that, so far at least, my earliest recording uh, came from after a time I'd finished the training sessions. It stands out in that, prior to me really getting any sense of control, it sounds and feels like a recording. In fact, it's one of the few memories where it's not something I need to edit together to share with you. It's a memory of an episode I finished editing before getting dark. I learned later that emotion, untethered, kicked the shit into high gear, so I suppose I shouldn't be too surprised. I hesitated in sharing this with you, though. It was a decidedly raw moment for me, but it's the first very clear recording or whatever that I have, and given that things are about to get super fractured, I feel like Not only is sharing necessary, but owed in some way. 
because it's at this point that our little journey almost ended. I'm warning you now. I think my brain somehow knew, hey, she needs to remember this and stored it for safekeeping, and I'm offering up a trigger warning because this deals with abuse, regardless of the euphemisms used by the author of the entry discussed. If you're not in the headspace to hear it, maybe skip this one. But so you know, after this, things get weird. And with all of these disclaimers, let's go. Ever hear of imposter syndrome? Basically, it refers to a state of relentless self-doubt. You feel like what you've accomplished is insignificant or irrelevant. You worry about being exposed as a fraud. You essentially see yourself as an imposter in the story of your own life, a connoisseur of masks rotated to maintain the illusion of worthiness. I know sometimes I come off as sure of myself, maybe even arrogant. As I've listened to past interviews, the bravado is bravado? Bravado? Whatever, it's glaring. Makes some of the comments and reviews about how irritating I can be make sense. But the funny part is, I don't feel that way. Most days, I'm winging it. (laughs) Hoping I'm less Icarus and more Phoenix. I have to believe there's at least a kernel of truth to that. (laughs) At this point, I have all but mastered the art of crashing and burning. Burning, quite literally, in fact. Generally speaking, I'm pretty good at hiding my doubt, but Josh always saw right through me, and it would irk him. Maybe you've noticed I was pretty good at getting under his skin. No idea why he put up with me. But he really hated it when my confidence wavered. I called it self-doubt, he called it self-sabotage. Maybe he was right. I don't know. What I do know is that he wouldn't stand for it, and in typical Josh fashion, he'd use humor to diffuse the situation. His favorite tactic was using theatrics and sarcasm to point out the absurdity of the thought spiral. You're totally right, Addison. You're an absolute hack who'll never amount to anything and is likely going to bring shame to not only the paper, but your family name. That's totally why you were given this assignment in the first place. Stuff like that was usually enough to get me to snap out of it, but there were times the smile would have come. During those times, Josh would take both my hands in his and force me to look him in the eye. There is no moment besides the one you're in right now. And in this moment, you are a limitless kaleidoscope of possibility and capability. Tell me three good things about yourself in this moment. He'd make me do it, too. Acknowledging the good, the light, he said, was a way to drive out the dark. Sometimes, not even Josh could break through. I'd go catatonic, frozen, unable to move or make choices or find a crack in the distorted reasoning, a sliver through which the light of reason could sneak in. A doctor described it as part of an anxiety disorder. I know we've talked about panic attacks before. It never made a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, I guess I'd always understood panic attacks as something wild and frenzied, but for me, it looked like something entirely different. Didn't make it any less scary, just harder to explain to people. We tried different interventions. I mean, I know I told you that my mom 
gave me pretty productive coping skill, but for a while, you know, I'd reach for a clonopin or something else. Rarely, though. I'm not afraid of much, but I've seen people addicted to benzos, and yeah, not playing that game. Okay, hey, this is not an accidental aside. If you're struggling with addiction, please reach out. To me, to someone you love, to your local health centers, it's a miserable way to live and a sure way to die, and I promise, promise, there are resources nearby to help you. And I promise, promise, there are people who love you, even when you don't feel it in the moment, who really, really, really hope you make that kind of call. There is life beyond a glass bottle or orange bottle or whatever kind of bottle you're escaping from. Make the call. I'll include some resources in the show notes, but please, if you're listening, I'm telling you right now, I love you, and I desperately need you to know that. (sighs) Okay, back to work. When I was in the presence of an empath, they'd usually calm me down without realizing it. Fun fact, most empaths don't have a lot of control. Unless they're focused on cultivating a specific emotion, their default setting is to just diffuse any intense emotion. They're not even conscious of doing it. So why share this now? Well, two reasons. First, I've found that sharing these kinds of experiences just helps. It definitely feels like a weight off my shoulders to just put it out there. But also, I think it's good to talk openly about this sort of stuff. Let people know that they're not alone. There are more people out there than you realize who know exactly what you mean. On the morning of this day, (laughs) I know I did. I didn't sleep well the night before. Part of it was jitters, part of it was those damn dreams. Faces gone, just like form muttering the now all too familiar admonishment. Guard up, head down, guard up, head down, guard up. But the shadow woman seemed agitated that night. Her head and limbs jerked and twitched. Instead of gradually moving towards me, she appeared in random locations in that great blank expanse. No more discernible features than before, but she seemed as tense as I felt. I called out to her, asking what she wanted. In the final go-round, as I yelled in search of answers, her voice was more in my ear. I told you, she whispered, before screaming, head down. I bolted straight up in bed in a cold sweat. The clock said 4.12 a.m. and I knew there was gonna be no more sleep. I was wound so tightly, I felt like I might snap. It was time to put all of those coping lessons I'd learned in years of therapy to good use, even if that meant breaking a few rules. Step one, walk. I know, I know, I'd agreed not to leave the penthouse without following certain security protocols, but I wasn't about to wake up anyone else. I grabbed my phone and my earbuds focused, teleported to the river walk. God, I'll never get used to saying shit like that. Anyway, I got moving. I wasn't lying when I warned the team I was a walker. Seriously, if I'm stressed enough and have the time, I can easily, easily pull off like 20 miles in a day. I know that sounds like a lot, but the right playlist can do wonders. 20 miles wasn't going to happen that morning, but three miles, fueled by a playlist called Watch This Bitch, was something I could pull off. A little bit of sweat, a little bit of distraction, a lot a bit of difference. 
I teleported directly back to my bedroom as the sun's first rays tickled the skyline. Thank you, Terry, for the accuracy training. No one seemed to be awake yet, save Rashida. I could hear her in the kitchen already. But for as much as the walk had helped, I could still feel the anxiety gripping my neck like a vice. I wasn't ready to face the day. So, step two, shower. Sometimes, though not always, the heat from the water would ease some of the accumulated tension, particularly if I kept playing music in the background. But more than that, there's something calming in small acts of self-care. I know how stupid that sounds, but like if I can shower, then I can get dressed. And then I can brush my hair. And then I can eat something. It's taking that first small step that reminds you the whole day is just a series of small steps. I mean, I needed to shower. I went about the business convincing myself that the first day at Regnant, particularly with the expectations I had for the course of events, was somehow a mashup of small steps, but unfortunately, that was not very effective. I showered anyway. I put on lotion, I dried my hair, I straightened it, I carefully painted my face before painting my nails a pale pink with equal care. I selected a pair of black pants and a light airy white blouse. I put on pearls. Pearls. Me. <sighs> I slipped on heels, I spritzed myself with perfume, and then I looked in the mirror. But you know what doesn't help imposter syndrome? Not being able to recognize your own reflection. So step three, pacing. I still wasn't ready to leave the room. You know, going out and facing Rashida and the rest of the team would mean that the day was real, that all the things I was nervous about were real, that all these outside risks were real. I, I was not ready for real. I took a deep breath, then another. That familiar sensation of tightening muscles, a tightening throat, a tightening chest, rendering attempted deep breaths more shallow by the moment was setting in. Tears smarted my eyes. I blinked them back. I couldn't risk messing up my makeup, obviously. That's all I could think, this ridiculous worry about my damn makeup. No empaths nearby, no clonopin inside. I was about to white-knuckle it, something that I really couldn't afford on a day like that. Three good things, three good things, three good things. I am good at making people laugh. Maybe not haha funny, but funny enough to make people relax a little. I was good at... Pyrokinesis. I mean, of all the offensive sensitivities, it seemed to be the one I had the most control over, and I still remembered Rosemary's stories about how hard that was supposed to be, so that was something, and I, I was good at... stories. That was it. That was all it took. I snapped out of it and basically sprinted to the computer. If I needed a shot of life in the arm, a reminder that I had this shit on lock, I was going to do the one thing I knew I could do. I was going to tackle an entry. The most intuitive choice on the morning you start work in the proverbial lion's den? Maybe not. But when have I ever made much sense? I picked an entry at random. If I believed in God or fate or any such nonsense, I'd say it was in play that day. Because god damn. I know this report is not going to be well-received. Maybe it will be. I'm aware my objective was to investigate a potential sensitive case and either neutralize the threat or recruit the target. Usually, that's exactly what I would have done. 
As my track record demonstrates, I'm exceptionally good at following orders. Bearing this in mind, I'm hoping my judgment in this instance will be respected. I lobbied for this case. That's not like me, I know. Again, I'm usually one to just follow where the orders take me. There were extenuating circumstances, though. It had become a poorly kept secret that Jennifer was sleeping with Corinne. I might have been a machine in the field, but I was still very much a woman with a pulse, and even I had my limits. They'd been reached. Who was I without Jennifer? What kind of wife did this make me? What kind of agent was I that I seemed to be the last to know? The case seemed a perfect opportunity to clear my head. The stakes were low, the story intriguing, and most importantly, it would put a couple thousand miles between myself and a cheating wife. Give me time to clear my head. Havershire was a sweet, sleepy little town. Gingerbread Victorian homes stood stately, without being pompous, along poplar lined streets. Children played behind white picket fences. Neighbors smiled and nodded at one another as they walked their dogs. The downtown area was a few blocks large, featuring a car shop, a doctor's office, a coffee shop, a couple restaurants, a smattering of charming boutiques, and a handful of antique stores. The elementary, middle, and high school stood down the road in a large combined building. Town Hall, perhaps just a smidge too pretentious, was located at the edge of that downtown area, along with the post office. The motel I'd taken up residence in was about a mile outside of town. It was one of a handful of places that didn't have a sugary reputation, where cheating husbands and other ne'er-do-wells congregated. It was usually largely vacant. I'm not sure whether I should be surprised or impressed by that. I admit, I took longer doing background research than was necessary. I was dragging my feet, far from eager to return back to HQ. So I conducted interviews. Unlike most small towns, there didn't seem to be much of a gossip mill. Everyone spoke very highly of their neighbors, quick to tout achievements and virtues. There was a real sense of community pride. If I didn't know better, it would have been endearing. But in my experience, that sort of harmony isn't a happy accident. It's a cover. I made friends with some of the local women. I was considering a move, I said. I was an artist. I was looking for somewhere I could work on my craft, maybe travel to promote it, but mostly find peace. Knowing smiles and head nods inevitably followed my laments about city life, how cold and isolating it could be. Havershire, they assured me, was the cure to what ailed me. The local real estate agent even collected some listings for me to consider. It was a short list, but that, she explained, was a testament to how much people loved the community. No one wanted to leave. But what about the disappearances, I asked. The murders? The realtor's face darkened. Those weren't in Havershire, she said. Some of the larger cities, yes, but not Havershire. It was all those arts festivals and street markets. But Havershire, she said, her smile rebounding was as safe as they come. Eventually, though, it was time to start digging. Was there any community of artists, I asked? Kindred spirits? One of the young mothers giggled. There was, of course, wine and unwind night. It was run by another local artist, a woman named Hope Singer. Once a week, 
she opened her studio for an evening session of art and sipping on wine. It was mostly a social hour for the women in town, a girl's night out. It was cheap, it was fun, it was harmless. I had to come, they said. Who was I to turn down such a cordial invitation? Hope was what you might expect. A bohemian vision of long, wavy hair, swept back in a low-hanging braid, her body draped in flowing layers of jewel-toned clothing, a smudge of paint on her cheek and a brush behind her ear. She ushered the ladies to their canvases, collecting a small fee from each attendee. At the front of the room sat a bowl of fruit next to a vase full of wildflowers. It was the definition of a cliché as she instructed her imbibing audience to focus less on form and more on feeling. Given what the women came up with, I think it's safe to say what they were feeling was the warmth of a wine buzz. I idly made my own poor attempt at feeling my way into a vision, occasionally smiling and nodding to make it look like I was paying attention to the social component of the evening, but I was decidedly distracted. On the wall behind the evening subject matter were a wide array of masks, each more ornate than the next. Some were an expression of pure joy. Sprays of color exploding tight smiles were jewels and ribbon tugged upwards at the corners of empty eyes. Others were nearly painfully forlorn. A tapestry of cool blues, blacks, and purples, each gap in the plaster reminding you of black holes. A few were terrifyingly angry. I don't even know how to describe those except to say they sent a chill down my spine. Hope must have caught me staring. Do you like them? She asked. I did, I said. They were beautiful. And I meant that. She glanced back at the wall. We all wear masks, don't you think? She said. One way or another. There was something wistful in her voice. A heaviness in her shoulders, like she was carrying the weight of the world. The next morning, I asked the ladies meeting for coffee about Hope and her masks. A handful of them gushed about how wonderful Hope was, how talented an artist she was, how she and I would probably hit it off. I offered a tepid smile in return, but not before taking note of the faltering smile on the face of Brittany, one of the regulars in the group. She, I told myself, was who I needed to talk to. When Brittany began to take her leave, I offered to go with her said I needed to stretch my legs. She agreed amiably, perhaps too cheerfully, but it was a polite thing to do and we both knew it. What was she gonna do? Tell me to fuck off? No. We walked in silence for a couple minutes as Brittany pushed her shoulder. I thought I'd have to be the one to make conversation, which is why it caught me off guard when Brittany said, matter-of-factly, no hint of question in her voice, that I wanted to know about Hope. I nodded, not wanting to spook the woman, but she just nodded in return, offering no more information. On we walked, the quiet hanging heavy between us. I wasn't sure what to do or say, and then we were in front of her house. I was sure I'd blown it, but then she took a deep breath. Hope, she said, was special. She'd done a great deal to help the people of Havershire, though no one ever spoke of it. She had a way of drawing out the emotions of people, helping them strip away feelings that were getting in the way of them enjoying their lives. All she asked in return was that she be allowed to keep the resulting mask. That gave me pause. Masks, I asked, 
Brittany regarded me quizzically. Of course, she said. She shrugged. It was just art therapy, really, but there was enough hesitation in her voice that I reached out to touch her arm. It's more than that, isn't it? I asked. Brittany's lip trembled as she looked up at her house. Sighing, she invited me in. The home was just as lovely on the inside as it was on the outside. She picked her little one, no more than three, up out of his stroller, setting him down and watching him run off. Let no man say the woman didn't love her child. It was written all over her face. Right, she said. I think we're going to need something stronger than coffee. Normally, I don't drink gin straight, particularly at 10 o'clock in the morning, but I made an exception. The story came tumbling out. Brittany had married her high school sweetheart, a guy named Brett. He was the Havershire golden child, QB, academic overachiever, noted for his community service. He went off to school at San Diego State and came back with a degree in education and a ring for Brittany. The wedding was modest, but in a town like Havershire, everyone was there. It was beautiful, she said, something like a bittersweet symphony fluttering across her features. Her face then turned dark. The honeymoon didn't last long. Brett was dissatisfied with small-town life after his time away. He'd gotten a job teaching middle school social studies, but his real passion was bringing quote-unquote culture to Havershire. He tried to lobby for a Starbucks. He contemplated a Wendy's franchise. He tried a nightclub. A nightclub, of all things, Brittany exclaimed with exasperation. Their savings, with him working as a teacher and her as a nurse at the local doctor's office, were dwindling, not least of all due to the drinking that ramped up with each of Brett's failures. And then there was the matter of children. Brett was insistent that they have children. It's not that I didn't want kids, Brittany said quickly, but the timing wasn't right. But she wanted to wait. Brett? Not so much. When he found her birth control at the back of a bathroom drawer, he went from insulting her regularly to taking a swing or two, just to keep things interesting. It was Hope who first noticed the bruises beneath the makeup, Brittany explained. She'd kept her after the wine and unwind class to ask about it, and though Brittany had vehemently denied anything was wrong, Hope simply nodded. She suggested a special gift for her husband, a custom mask celebrating his glory days and their life together. At first, Brittany was confused. Why on earth would she suggest such a thing? Hope told her that it would be on the house. All she had to do was get Brett to the store. What happened then? I asked. Nothing, Brittany said. Brett never came back. The pregnancy test showed up positive the next day, and child support checks came regularly thereafter. But every trace of Brett was gone. I don't know what Hope did, she said, but I will forever be grateful. Brittany's story stuck in my head when I got back to the hotel, surveying the images from the case files I'd been given before I hit the road. Pictures of men, always men, with the entirety of the skin on their faces torn away in one clean swipe. The muscles and tendons a stark red against the flapping yellow crime scene tape in the background. 
Then there was a list of other names, names without bodies in the same area. Could Hope really be behind it? It seemed out of step with everything I'd heard of her, this gory kind of vengeance. But then I started digging. And by digging, I mean I fell down a rabbit hole for a good 36 hours. Each man on that list, every single one of them, either had a record or, upon some less ethical investigation by telephone, a history of abuse to their name. I was having a hard time seeing why anyone would miss any of them. But there was another thing the cases had in common. Each disappearance and kill took place around the same time as, and in close vicinity to, traveling art fairs. I knew that Hope had become pretty settled in Havershire, but I was willing to bet the farm that Hope had been at each of those traveling art fair stops. The loose end? Those damn masks. And there was only one person who could tie it all up for me. Hope didn't look up as I opened the door to her studio and the tinkle of bells filled the room. I've been expecting you, she said. Wordlessly, she moved to the door, flipped the open sign to closed, and closed the blinds before turning to face me. Let's begin, she said. I don't know why I didn't question her. I simply followed her to a back room where she escorted me to a reclining chair. Slowly, she coated my face in petroleum jelly and got to work, layering my face with strips of plaster-soaked cloth. You know why I like masks, she asked, because whether they're made of plaster or something else, we all wear masks, and their existence confirms that. We all pretend to be something we're not. Sometimes we wear more than one at a time. Sometimes we swap them out for others, depending on where we're at. Sometimes they're the accumulation of others' expectations. Sometimes they're of our own creation. But always, always, we wear them. I was in no position to speak. I just listened. Those masks, she said, they hide our secrets. Sometimes those secrets are beautiful. These little flickers of joy buried under doubt or duty. Peeling them away is freeing. Imagine the sensation you feel when you step into a spring breeze after a long winter, finally taking a deep breath. That's what it feels like. Sometimes, though, those masks hide something ugly. They let the ugly slide beneath the radar. They add to the collection of masks others have to wear to hide the damage done didn't have to speak. My eyes, peeking from beneath the plaster, were saying all that needed to be said. Brett, she said, had an ugliness beneath his masks. The mask of the kind teacher, the doting husband, the sorry-eyed dreamer. All I did was strip it away. Same with the guy in Sausalito, and the guy outside San Francisco. No more masks. No more secrets. She paused, looking down at me thoughtfully. I could feel the plaster hardening far more quickly than it should have as she traced her finger along my cheek. What secrets, she asked, do your masks hide? Her hands moved towards my hairline, 
her nails slipping under the edge of the plaster, and she began to lift up the cast. I have no words to adequately describe the sensation that followed. I let out a scream, low and guttural as pain and heartbreak and fear and shame, like tendrils of raw, unfiltered emotion were drawn out with the mask. Rolling to my side, I vomited, the tears pouring from my eyes, every nerve in my body raw and pulsing, every muscle trembling, every thought swirling at the speed of light. I've never been so dizzy in my life, bracing myself on the arm of the chair like letting go might mean a never-ending freefall. As the sobs subsided, Hope placed a hand softly on my back. Look up, she said. In her hands was a perfect plaster cast of my face. I don't mean the emotionless expression I wore as she formed it. It wasn't even really a likeness, at least not in the traditional sense. It was twisted, pained, anguished on one side. It was grim, resolute, unflappable on the other, a silver badge reflecting under the eye. The colors, discordant, swirled in front of me until slowly, like sand in an hourglass, they settled, bubbling into carefully placed gemstones, metallic flourishes, braiding, and tassels. It was mesmerizing and heartbreaking and real. You have a choice to make now, Hope said, and I'll respect whatever that is, but promise me, no more masks. So Hope is still in Havershire. I'm sure my mask has joined her collection on the back wall. I'm sure we'll hear about another man whose face sits raw and bloodied at some point. I'm also sure he'll have deserved it. And above all, I'm sure I'm where I need to be keeping my promise to Hope. Could you say the same? Like I said, fate, divine intervention, whatever, it was the right entry at just the right moment. I stared at the computer screen for a bit after that, just staring, no life-altering thoughts, no body-contorting fear, just... A blank slate, I guess. Eventually, I stood up and walked over to the mirror, my hands lifting to my face. It didn't look like my own. It really didn't. It didn't feel like my own. It looked like a costume. <laughs> I guess it was, in a way. But in that moment, violently so, I knew it was the wrong face altogether. I, I wasn't an imposter, but this, this version of me, was. I sprinted to the bathroom and scrubbed it clean, glancing up at the pink, dripping vision in front of me. That, that raw and plain face, that was me. And I knew that being me was the only way I was going to survive this. No more masks. I toweled off, put on my usual dab of concealer, coat of mascara, and chapstick. I went to the closet, discarding the swanky blouse in favor of a plain, long-sleeved tee. I took the pins out of my hair and threw it up into a messy bun. 
I kicked off the heels in favor of flats. I threw my computer in the bag, took one last look in the mirror, and headed to the kitchen. Rashida was already there. There you are, sleepyhead. Mm, doesn't that require actual sleep? Coffee, then. I got it. Yes, please. <sighs> Sorry. I'd say make it a double, but I already drank enough of the traditional form of that last night, so I'm just going to pull a Lorelei and say I need it in an IV. Well, I'm not sure I can accommodate that, but let's see what we can do. Hey, Rashida... Is there ever a time you felt like, I don't know, I mean, I know my dad was an asshole. No, he was, and I'm sure he, at times, made you feel, like, less than you were. Miss Addison, It's okay, I... I know you're probably not one to speak of the dead and all that, I won't ask you to, but we both know that's probably what happened, so my question is this, I guess. When he tried to make you feel like you were less than how did you stay standing you know i didn't live here first right yeah i don't talk about this i don't want you talking about this but it seems as though you need to hear it so breathe with me okay inhale hold Two, three, four. Okay, exhale. And hold. Two, three, four. Inhale. That's it. Keep going. That's a thing called four-square breathing. I think I sort of remember that from, whatever, it doesn't matter. I can breathe, that's not the issue. Oh, love, that's exactly the issue. Breathing is the answer you're looking for, not a bottle. Oh, fuck off, Rashida. I will not. Do it again. I'll tell you a story. Good. Keep doing that. And listen. At home, my father was a complicated man. I won't call him a bad man, but he wasn't a good man either. He had his moments, but the rage and the drinking and the shame overwhelmed the moments where I actually felt like I had a father. The problem with that is that it was easier to just think of the good moments. That meant it became all too easy to get blindsided. I think in some ways that's what he wanted. He didn't want me to see his tirades coming. He didn't want me to see the slap or the kick or the punch coming. And I know above all else that he wanted me to think it was my fault. And when the final hit came, I would die knowing it was my fault. Fuck, Rashida, I... Hush. Keep breathing. Good. Now, the problem with my father's plan was that he thought he had me trained, I suppose. Except I had this teacher at school. 
She saw how I flinched when voices were raised and she saw how my voice wavered whenever I was called on or mustered the courage to raise my hand. She saw the bruises and she saw the cuts. It was a different time. There wasn't... There was little she could do. But she pulled me to the side one day and said, Roche, that's what they called me back then, you are smarter, stronger and more than what you've been told. It was a moment. Just one moment in time. It didn't change my father, didn't change my situation, but it changed me. So I'm going to say, repeat that and hope it does for you what it did for me. Not because I'm repeating what I heard, but because I truly believe it. You are smarter and stronger and more than you have been told, both by others and yourself. You are more than you understand. I believe in you. I need you to believe in yourself because even though I don't fully understand what's happening right now, I have a feeling that you need to remember that you are Addison fucking Gilmore. I'm not entirely sure what surprised me more. That Rashida was a bona fide badass survivor, which I guess shouldn't have been surprising really knowing her, but whether it was that or that she had used the word fucking, I'm still not sure. <laughs> what I'm sure of is that I needed to hear exactly that. <clears throat> it wasn't just that day that I needed to hear those words. They would stick with me through all the turbulent times to come, and for that, I will be forever grateful. I can't promise you'll get that clear of a recounting of conversations that took place thereafter. Like I said, everything is a little fractured. On top of feeling like I'm defragging a computer at a glacial pace in a haphazard manner, though, is a side effect I hadn't fully appreciated until recently. Long after I walked the halls of Rugnan, a few things happened. Some of them necessary and sought after, and others I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Things that damaged some of these already fractured memories. I'm not sure how else to put it. It's like something or someone tried to overwrite some of them. Like in Westworld, when Aaron Paul's character realizes these super vivid memories he has of certain events were conditioned into existence. Sorry if that's a spoiler for anyone. The thing is, there at least though, there was a purpose to the rewrite. And even though it wasn't fully understood all the time, like it was known that it was something nefarious. Some of these though, it's like I can tell there was a rewrite, right? Sometimes it's just that I recognize it and I can't get beneath it, but sometimes I get past the rewrite and, I don't know, it, it doesn't make sense that certain things had to be rewritten for any conceivable reason. I mean, some, I get that they're tied to something important and that I'm pulling at the right threads, but others, I don't know. I feel like my memories, despite being literally recorded in some cases, aren't just unreliable, but not mine? Does that make any sense? And there I go, being all vague again. 
I will say this. I think you at least have a decent idea of the backdrop against which rubber was meeting the road going into Regnant. We'll be getting to some of the meat of things now. I should have another episode for you soon. I won't promise you when it will be. If you've walked with me this far, you know I'm not great at being dependable. And while my circumstances have changed dramatically in the past couple of weeks, you're still in catch-up mode on what led to said circumstances. Meanwhile, shit in my world, right this moment, is still going down. In other words, have patience. I'm moving as fast as I can. I'm still safe, though. For now, at least. Like I said before, I'm kind of on a run here. (laughs) I'm getting a little nervous because my cash reserves are running low. I know I could try a couple of things to keep me afloat, but most of those things would put me squarely on the radar of people I need to avoid. So if you have a dollar or two, you could throw my way to cover expenses. I'd be super grateful. You can do so at patreon.com slash the box. I appreciate every penny. Until next time, y'all stay safe too. Thank you for listening to The Box. Don't worry, more episodes will be coming soon. In the meantime, make sure you've subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Of course, if you could rate and leave a review, it's always greatly appreciated. To get more information on the podcast, visit theboxpodcast.home.blog. You can also connect with us on Twitter at The Box Stories and on Facebook as The Box Podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, feedback, or tips, contact us at OpenTheBoxPodcast at gmail.com. Want to support the show? Consider making a donation at patreon.com slash the box. Every penny helps us bring you more great content, and we'll be launching Patreon-exclusive content soon. Thank you again for listening to The Box. Thank you.